Welcome to the Financial Coaches Network, a show to help financial coaches build and grow successful coaching businesses by focusing on the three pillars, getting clients, working with clients, and running the business. I'm Garrett Fulbin. Over the first four years as a coach, I grew a successful financial coaching business to over 80K in annual revenue. And I'm Joshua Escalante Troche. As a tenured professor of entrepreneurship and a consultant, during the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business. Well, here's a fun topic, life insurance. Yeah. Nothing seems to endear as much, what shall we say? Debate. Debate. Rancor. Badness. Yeah, rancor (laughs) is a great word. Personal attacks, judgment, sense of getting screwed over, all of the things. I guess, you know, that's maybe client side, but a lot of hard feelings and strong feelings as life insurance. Mm -hmm. So... Besides just the fact that, you know, let's dive into something that there's a lot of contention around. Why talk about it on one of our lives? Well, I think that there's a, a few key things. Number one, a form of life insurance came up, which is a universal index life policy in the discussion. Garrett and I had already planned to have this life insurance discussion before that big discussion came up. But obviously, that's something that bubbled up in the community. And we're not going to talk about universal index life. I think that probably deserves its own separate conversation. But just talking about life insurance from the perspective of how do we serve clients properly? Because unfortunately, life insurance has a very, very dogmatic viewpoints attached with it. There is broad agreement that People don't like taxes. Even people who you would think politically would be all in favor of taxes, they are until they end up having to pay them. And then they end up saying, oh, I don't like taxes now either. (laughs) So there's like pretty good agreement about that. There's also pretty good agreement that it is good to lower one's taxes, although people tend to say, you should not lower your taxes, but it's okay for me to lower mine. But there's also a lot broad agreement that people shouldn't do it in an illegal way and that that's wrong. Life insurance has a lot more dogma associated with it, where there are these definitive camps of this is the right way, no, this is the right way, and the other side is wrong. The reality is dogma is dangerous and it damages clients, it harms clients in very significant ways. And so you want to be very careful about this. My philosophy is if you have a strong belief about life insurance, Whatever your belief is, you are wrong. I love because there is words. No, not at all. And that's because the beliefs really come down to one of two. You want me to not miss words at all in a few seconds? Like I will be, for any of you listening to this, please know I'm not hating on you or anything else. I'm making this for a point of making it stand out in your minds. This isn't really an attack. But the two sides that it comes down to, and whichever side you're on, by the way, you will totally agree with one thing I say and totally disagree with the other thing that I say. But whichever side you're on, it really comes down to oftentimes two things, which is life insurance should be term life insurance only. And anything other than that is a horrible product and a complete waste of money. Or life insurance is a wonderful investment. It's a solution to all sorts of problems. And whole life insurance, universal life insurance is a thing that you should be investing in. 
for all these different bank on yourself, blah, blah, blah reasons. And the fact of the matter is the side that comes down on life insurance is a wonderful thing for investments and whole life and universal life is the best thing since sliced bread. That's the side that gets paid commissions for selling life insurance and whole life and universal life happen to have the highest commissions in the industry. And the side that says whole life and universal life is terrible and you should never get it and term life is the only thing anyone should get is the side that doesn't really know what they're talking about with life insurance, doesn't know how the product works and has gotten that from listening to other people who have a very superficial understanding of life insurance. Neither side is right. They're both, there's truth to both. Yeah, I, I think you talked about this in launch, but where mm -hmm. it's, if they're in phase two, it's not the tool that is bad. It's how people have used the tool or how the tool gets, yeah. gets used, or if people try to sell you a hammer when you don't need a hammer. And so, right, any dogmatic approach, which is saying like, this tool is inherently yeah. bad, is not accurate. It really comes down to just their own experience with it, what they've heard from other people, when it's been used inappropriately. And on the flip side, this tool is always good. No, it's not. It can't be because that's not how finances works. And so we have to have this understanding that the tools are there and they each have their own very specific advantages and disadvantages. And when we come at things from a dogmatic viewpoint, from either side of the category, either whole universal life is wonderful or whole universal life is evil, when you come at it from either side of those, you harm clients. So let's talk about from a very high superficial level, which is going to be a lot deeper than probably has been talked about before. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But let's start by breaking life insurance down into two categories, because ultimately all life insurance is broken down into two categories. Everything else is of those two categories. So life insurance is either temporary life insurance, also known as term life insurance, or permanent life insurance also known as whole life, universal life, or something else, universal index or whatever other flavors that are put together. And so the question ultimately becomes first is not, is universal bad or whole bad or whatever else, or should we be investing in a universal policy or a whole policy or whatever else? What we first have to figure out is what is the life insurance need? Does the person have a temporary life insurance need or do they have a permanent life insurance need? There are some very basic, very superficial viewpoints of temporary versus permanent. And so as an example, a lot of people will say, well, life insurance is temporary because as you get more financially stable, you can insure yourself, right? Because you've got all of your funding for your life needs taken care of through your assets. So you don't need life insurance anymore at some point. And that's partially true. <laughs> but it's not fully true. Let's say that you have two children, Garrett. And that would be a surprise, but let's yeah, Much more of a surprise, by the way, like my wife and I talk about this. It would be much more of a surprise for her to be surprised with children she didn't know about than me. So <laughs> Biologically, that is a very true statement. Yes. So the, but let's say you had two children and let's say that you had $5 million that you had amassed in your retirement. And your goal is to give each child $1 million. That is your absolute goal. And you want to give the rest to charity, to a series of charities. 
right? Whatever is left over out of that is to a series of charities. But you absolutely know that you want a million dollars to go to each child. You've done a ridiculous amount of calculations to know that is the perfect number. Okay. So it happens to also be a million, which is the number that everyone pulls out of the hat. Convenient. Yes. So you got $5 million. The argument would be you don't need life insurance because you've got $5 million. You just need to make sure that you've got $2 million at least left over. So let me ask you, how do you guarantee with your investments that you're going to have $2 million left over on the date of your death? I don't know, but I love your face right now. I just have to say, it's like, tell me, how does that work? Right. Because you can't. You don't know what's going to happen with a stock market. You don't know what's going to, even if you stick the money into a savings account, you don't know what's going to happen to your, with your health. You don't know if you're going to need long-term care, how long that long-term care is going to be. You don't know if you have a lawsuit that might endanger that. And so life insurance would be a way of guaranteeing that million dollars. Now let's take the next step. So term life insurance, of course, is the way to go because what was the date you were going to die again? I actually don't want to name it. I'm not going to right. it. Sometime in the future, hopefully a long time from now. And that's the problem. Even if you're 90, you don't know if a 20-year policy is long enough. By the way, they won't give you a 20-year policy at 90. Regulators won't let them do it. The, uh, and so you can't, you can't have a term life insurance policy to solve this need. You need to have a permanent life insurance. Now, of course, we can talk about whether or not giving the, a guaranteed million dollars is a wise thing and all this other stuff, but that's beside the point. If that's the client's goal, if that's what they're trying to achieve, then you can't actually achieve that without that life insurance. And all of the arguments about, oh, but they could make more money by investing in the stock market and there'd be more money left over, so on and so forth. Those all fall on deaf ears because the client is not worried about maximizing the amount of money they give to their children. The client is worried about guaranteeing a million dollars each to establish, help these children establish their lives. And then the rest goes to charity and they don't have a specific number they want to give to charity. So everything else we're talking about is basically just saying, forget the client needs. I want to talk about my philosophies. Yeah. And whenever you're not centering or whenever we don't center what mm -hmm. the clients want, like that's problematic. Yeah. And there's where the dogma damages clients comes in. But it also damages clients because there are all sorts of issues. If you are on the I love life insurance perspective, you're going to put clients into far more life insurance that they need. You're going to think that you're doing a good thing, by the way, because that's how conflicts of interest in our subconscious works. <laughs> And you're going to place them in a very bad position later in life. And I have had many people come to me, especially through my nonprofit, who have put a lot of money into life insurance products, and they are not well prepared for life because that's what they ended up being sold all the way up until they're in their 60s. And now they're actually trying to figure out how they're going to make this work. So there's the fundamental first question, permanent or temporary need? Now let's talk about how the permanent life insurance works, because this is also another fun little thing. <laughs> it's a weird definition of fun, but I'm there with yeah. you. Permanent life insurance isn't permanent. Yeah. What does the definition of permanent mean? Actually, that might be a helpful starting point. So permanent, all that means is that it's possible for the life insurance to go until the person's death. Okay. But it doesn't actually necessarily mean that it will go to the person's death. 
Whole life insurance is the most likely to hit this criteria because whole life insurance is guaranteed by the insurance company. There is a premium that you're required to pay. If you pay that premium, there is a set rate of return that is in the contract and it is mathematically calculated out to hit that point, hit whatever point we're talking about. But it's not necessarily permanent because even with whole life, there is a point in time where you get to a certain age where they just cancel the life insurance policy. Now, this doesn't mean that the person gets screwed over. It's the cash value has grown large enough that it matches the death benefit. And so you just get the death benefit. (laughs) It's actually a protection feature so that the insurance company just doesn't keep collecting money off this person when there's no real benefit to collect. And so even with a whole life policy that is guaranteed by the insurance company, this is important. It's not guaranteed by anyone else, just the insurance company. So if the insurance company goes under, you still don't have a policy. So there's not like an FDIC or an like a NCUA type protection for people who have insurance policies, like insures the insurers? So there are those types of things, but they have limits. They're run by the states. Certain states' limits are different depending on the formulas they use. They will have, some states don't have them. Certain ones are funded better than others. So it may exist. It may not exist. And to varying degrees of which it may exist. Okay. Yeah, because life insurance is controlled by the states, not by the federal government. So that's the first part of permanent. The second part of permanent is what the life insurance portion is. Because permanent insurance is actually two separate things put together, whether it's universal or whole life, it's two things put together. A lot of people talk about it as, oh, it's life insurance with this savings account attached to it. And it's a really nice, simplistic sales pitch that is given by the life insurance industry to try and get people to buy life insurance because it helps them understand it. And it's actually a pretty good explanation. So you have these two separate things. You've got this pool of money. This pool of money could be similar to a savings account where you are guaranteed a rate of return. That's the whole life. Or it could be where you're investing it and you're not guaranteed a rate of return. It's based on the investments. That's the universal life side. In either case, though, we've got this big pot of money, the savings account. And out of that savings account comes all sorts of fees and all sorts of other stuff. But one of the many fees that comes out of that savings account is the insurance policy. And what they're actually doing is they are buying a one-year term policy every year for as long as there's enough money in the savings account. (laughs) And so the life insurance component of it is actually a one-year term policy. It's it's an extreme term policy. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons why that savings account needs to grow so large is because if the person's going to make it to 80s or 90s, it's a pretty expensive one-year policy at that point. And so those are the big things that we look at with regards to that that definition of permanent. Now let's break down the permanent side. You've got universal versus whole. Whole life insurance is, you can think of it very much like a savings account, which is the money's put in, there's a contract that says this is the interest that you're going to earn on it. The risk is borne by the insurance company. That doesn't mean you don't have any risk. It just means that you have a guaranteed rate of return. And if the insurance company falters on their risks, then you also falter on your risk. I have a slide when I teach life insurance in college classes 
where we'll talk about, oh, here are all the insurance companies that have gone out of business in the last 20 years. And the slide is like eight point font. And it's just it's like eight columns, eight point font, just filling up the entire screen. <laughs> and so that is a very key thing. There is risk associated with it. Now, the argument the insurance company makes is that life insurance companies are very well regulated. They have lots of capital there, so on and so forth, which is all true. Life insurance companies don't go out of business as often as other random types of companies do because of the heavy regulations, but they can still go out of business. <laughs> On the universal side, what you have is think of it more like an investment account. And flowing into this investment account are the profits that you're making, which vary depending on what's going on in the stock market and what you're invested in and whatever premiums you put in. And flowing out the bottom of it is fees, the insurance money, the commissions, right? All that, all those stuff that flows out the bottom of this bucket, right? So it's a big bucket with a bunch of holes in it. And as long as the water is pouring in faster than it's draining out, everything's fine. But if that water drains too fast, you will get a call. And I've had people who have called me in a panic because they got this call. <laughs> you will get a call and they will say, hey, so you remember that insurance policy that you've been paying on and you know, got all this stuff in it and it's so great. And yeah, we need $30,000 by next Friday or it's going to implode. That does not sound fun. Generally, no. Yeah. Now, obviously, the $30,000 one was an extreme example of one, but that actually did happen. Usually, it's a smaller amount of money that they need, but you need, if the returns are not sufficient to keep that bucket up, the holes are still there. The, the, the money is still going to drain out. And so you need to come in and replace that. A lot of life insurance people will say, well, yeah, but the policies are structured so that they don't have that happen. No, the policies are structured so that statistically, it's unlikely for that to happen. But then you're back in the same boat of statistically, it's unlikely for you to lose 50% of your money in your 401k and it not recover. <laughs> you're still in the same risk. There is one difference, which is if you lose 50% in your 401k, your 401k sits there and you just have your half your money. Whereas if the returns are not sufficient to keep this policy up and running, if you don't put the extra money in, the money disappears because it will drain the bucket. And so when they say that you know, there's a low statistical chance for that to happen, is that based on their formula of you have to put in this much money and then if we expect you to have this type of return and these type of investments that you're doing? Yeah, it's basically, this is what it's invested in. This is what we expect the return to be. This is our cut of that expected return, what you're left with. And this is how that will grow over time. I feel like we've beaten up on the life insurance people a little bit for a while. So let's beat up on the other side just to keep things even. So we got about 10 minutes. Let's do a little bit more flogging of the other side and then yeah. we'll see what questions people have. The other side of it is this argument that's espoused where you should invest in term, buy term and invest the difference. That's a number one, totally understand why that argument exists. It comes out of the insurance industry selling life insurance as an investment. It is not an investment. It's illegal for it to be advertised as an investment. It is 
an insurance policy. <laughs> that is what it is. But it still has risks just like investments and so on and so forth. At the same time, there are certain things where life insurance, even whole life insurance being viewed as a savings account does make sense. And unfortunately for a lot of people, life insurance, even whole life, it's lower rates of return. True. High fees. True. The tax benefits are extremely oversold. True. Some of the tax benefits that are sold are about as close to lies without them technically being lies as you can get. You're really, you're really selling, you know, going easy on the life insurance people. I'm telling you what. But we have to realize that personal finance is more personal than finance. And the argument that the other side makes for why you should pay off using the snowball method, because behavior is more important than anything. And yes, you're going to pay a little more in interest, but it's more important that they get the pay debts paid off than what the math says. That same argument can be made, although it never is, exactly for investing in whole life insurance, using whole life insurance as a saving account. Because yes, the math says that on average, over long periods of time, you would have been, been better off investing in term, uh, putting money in term and investing the difference. But what about that behavior thing? Because you don't get a bill every month telling you to put money into your you have 401k. To invest. Yeah. Whereas the life insurance forces the person to because it's a bill. It becomes their rent, it becomes their mortgage, it becomes their car payment. It's just something they do, they pay. Yeah. And you can't discount that side either. And so the reality is, I said in the beginning, you're both wrong. You're also both kind of right. <laughs> you would also lead off with you're both wrong. Just you're worse. Got to wait. You got to wait for the optimism. Yep. I like how you framed that. So the snowball method and talking about how people bring in the psychology of it and then comparing that to how you could make that same argument for the life insurance side. But it's interesting to think about because you know my mind goes to, yeah, but that's really ex pretty darn expensive way of doing it. Also, if you aren't so investing, so method be. or like, you know, if you aren't putting any money away towards retirement, like is, you know, a, however much those commissions are like a third commission, but you're actually get, at least getting some money put in your retirement account better than not putting any money in your retirement account at all for however many years that is. Yeah. You know? Now, I'm going to get up on a soapbox real quick, just for the fun of it, and go. say, really, the answer is there should be a separation between advice and product sales. There's nothing wrong with product sales. Product sales are very important. I love sales reps, but they're not advice. And it's ultimately what it comes down to is that people who provide advice should be providing advice, in my opinion. And people who sell products should be the experts in those products for executing certain elements of the advice. And that becomes a, a more of a, of a solution to this because the person giving the advice or look, it doesn't have that conflict of interest of the commissions. And I do have some clients that I tell them, you should probably be saving into a whole life policy because there's nothing else that's been working. And I have 
whole life policies for completely different reasons that have nothing to do with the psychological aspects of it. You know, meaning I have clients that have whole life policies that have nothing to do with the psychological aspect of it and a few universal. Got it. Yeah. So she actually just asked, so is it okay to tell your clients what to get as a financial coach? Or can you only speak to kind of the high level differences that similar to what you did in this conversation? Depends on your state. So life insurance is a, as we said earlier, it's controlled by the states. There are some states where, yeah, you could totally tell them what to get. You want to make sure that you actually understand life insurance. I mean, hell, there's 15 different versions of term life insurance. I don't mean 10-year versus 20-year versus 25-year. Those aren't differences. That's just the term of the term. And so there's a lot of really complicated stuff with life insurance that honestly, very few people understand, including the people that sell the life insurance. It's one of the reasons why I believe in sales reps and advisors being separate because sales reps really need to have an expertise in the product because it is incredibly complex. So this is not saying that sales reps are bad. It's that they have a really important job and they really need to be able to focus on that job because it's really hard to do. To yeah, do well. Because conflicts of interest exist. That as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to depend on your state. So other states, there are states that literally say you cannot advise on a life insurance policy unless you are a licensed life insurance agent, period. Cool. It's also going to depend on the state that your client is in, just to throw a little more wrench into the works. Into the works. Yeah. And, and she had asked, you know, where, where can you find this information out? Oh, that's easy. Go to your state's insurance commissioner and say, Hi, I'm an unlicensed person wanting to talk about life insurance. What are your thoughts? They'll be very happy to take your call. Well, actually, they will, to be honest because with you. Most... They want to, they're glad yeah. that you are asking rather than doing yeah. and not asking. Yeah. So honestly, they will be very helpful. They'll help you understand where the lines are in your state. I would also do it for any clients in their states as well. Right. Regulators aren't there despite what people believe. Well, people in Some the people. industry believe. They're not there to punish people or attack people or, or stop you from doing business. They're there to protect the public. And so if you are reaching out so that you can follow the rules, they're very happy to help you follow the rules. <laughs> so, Cool. Well, those are all the questions that we have as of now. We may have some additional ones come in after, but this is fun. A little Thunderdome throwdown for life insurance and a good introduction. you know. And I think doing something similar with annuities probably be good. Just different topics where there have been a lot of conversations yeah. coming up and a lot of strong points of view. And actually before we jump, so yeah. Actually, let's have some fun. I hate fun. What yeah. In the comments to this video, yeah, people who are pro annuity, pro universal life, put in your arguments for what, for the pro yep. and people who are con Put in your arguments for the con, but please don't argue with each other. Just put the arguments in and we'll go through them and talk through all of them at a future live. And just to help reframe that, maybe let's not call it arguments then. That's framing it, Joe, not well. Put your position on each in there. <laughs> Sorry, the debate version of arguments, which is not attacking each other. It is the, the the facts, the statements, the philosophies on which this debate is going to 
center. So the debate version of arguments, not the colloquially, I'm angry at you version of arguments. That's a good point. Yes. Perfect. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially around such a contentious topic. Mm-hmm. Lastly, as our kind of exiting, oh, Derek Hagan said my audio is low. Goofy. At least it wasn't mine. So that's all I care about. Yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, I'll work on this. I'll put it right up here, Derek. Sorry about that. Hopefully that's a little better. So Chia just asked, how does, how does, Love you, too, by the way. I absolutely adore all the questions. Please keep them coming. Yeah. I know. She's great. We appreciate you and all the questions that you have. It's super helpful because I know other people have them, mm-hmm. uh, being able to answer them. Thank you. He said, how does Ramsey Solutions or someone like Dave Ramsey, hence like a radio personality, get away with his advice? As, he, as his listener, he strongly recommends term life only to his audience across the country. Yeah. So it's very simple. Dave Ramsey is not providing advice. He is an entertainer who is shielded by the First Amendment. And if you notice, Dave Ramsey did not start a financial advising firm. And it's not because he doesn't believe in them or he believes they're wrong or anything else. He has Ramsey Solutions, a preferred provider network or whatever they're calling it nowadays, where it's changed a couple of times. I just, I haven't caught up, kept up on what the new terminology is, but where has people go to what, what, what I will loosely call financial advisor in order to get financial advice. So he believes in it, but he didn't start it because probably he got really good legal advice which is he would not be able to say the things that he says if he were actually a a professional, right? If he were actually providing individual advice to people for a fee. This is actually one of the areas where there's a lot of harm done to the public because of it. The statement of making a 14% return would be absolutely illegal for a licensed financial advisor to make because it is not supported by any type of evidence. There is no, there's no research that demonstrates that that's possible, so on and so forth. But because he's on the radio, that First Amendment protection, and because he's not providing financial advice, the First Amendment protection stays intact. Right? A lot of people will use that First Amendment protection to when say it they're apply. protected when it doesn't apply. The First Amendment does not mean you can say anything you want, anytime you want, under any circumstances. Yeah, it's a very narrow protection. And there are carve outs in the law where the First Amendment disappears. And similarly, the education exclusion. Yeah. We've talked about that before, where I think like, you have to be a educator and it has to be within the context of like you as an educator. And so like, there are, again, very specific boundaries. Yeah. Being an educator does not mean you're providing education. It means you are a professional educator. That is your job. <laughs> it reminds me of the people who I used to laugh because I used to do copyright for Sony Music back in the day. So like making sure people had the right licenses. Yeah. And I would always laugh when I saw videos on YouTube that people had just ripped and thrown up and they're like, by the way, this is not my copyright and this is not a copyright infringement. I'm like, just that's, saying it's not, it's, it's not actually how it works, but <laughs> not making them wrong, right? Like some of them probably know, some of them maybe think that that's how it works, but it, it's that same kind of idea. Like you can't just say this is education. There actually are very specific things that make it or don't make it. 
Yeah. So make and even educators, a professor like myself mm-hmm. teaching a class, that education exclusion doesn't apply, doesn't mean that I can do or say anything. Even if the person is a student, if that person comes in and says, Hey, I'm taking a personal finance class with you. You were talking about 401ks. You were talking about the target date funds within the 401ks. Here are my options. Which target date fund should I choose? Even though I'm an educator, even though we were talking about as part of the curriculum for the course, I would not be able to do that as an unlicensed person if I was an unlicensed person during those office hours because that is that giving them advice about which one of the funds of the target date funds in their 401k is not part of being incidental to, which is the legal terminology, the profession of teaching. Yeah. Lots of fun stuff. (laughs) Well, this was fun for today. I think we'll leave it here. Get to annuities another time and let us know if this is helpful, not helpful. What other topics you'd like us to speak on? And we'll be back next week. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it as always. My pleasure, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Uh, It also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be, who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well. If you're ready to take the next step and build your successful financial coaching business, FCN has turnkey resources to help you get clients, work with clients effectively, and run your business efficiently. Head to Financial Coaches Network backslash start here or Financial Coaches Network backslash stall there if you're Sean Connery. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast.